this weekend we we had an opportunity uh six of us went uh out to uh new york out to lake sakandaga northville new york and um and spent some time together it was a a cool um a cool trip um great ride we packed five uh full-grown men into one vehicle and uh, that involved leg cramps and a lot of junk food, but overall it was okay. Um, and, uh, and so it was a really encouraging uh, trip and journey. And um, it was great to be with a, a group of men, um, both from our congregation. Then, and then the, the, here's what I love about Bedford Road before we get into the message. So what I love about Bedford Road, Friday night I said to the men from our church, um, from our congregation, I said, look, I said, we're here to be an encouragement. So here's what I want you guys to do. I want you to spread out, all right? Don't, don't stay together as one clump moving through this. Go out and make friends and connect with people and, and be a part of, of whatever is happening. And then we hit the door at 8 o'clock. Um, Jed, Tom, and I played, uh, played some music for them. And then I literally did not see the rest of the guys from our group the whole day. They, they spread out, and they went to different groups. Every once in a while, I passed with, I mean, I did one session with Dave, and we were, we were in a session together, and, and I did one that Tom and I were in, and one that Jed, but for the most part, we were all spread out. The only time I really saw everybody was when we did the collective things, like lunch, and, and my session, which was right after lunch. So clearly, he, clearly, Bill, the pastor of the church, had a lot of confidence that I would be able to keep people awake, because we had a big meal, and it was carb-heavy. Um, I think Ren's blood sugar was like nine million, um, and uh, you know, I mean, it was it was, but it was great. There was this huge trays of macaroni and cheese and barbecue, and now I'm hungry. Um, but uh, but it was it was really a great time, a great opportunity for us to go out and minister and and to be a part of that. And so um, we really enjoyed it. And I want to remind you that the ladies' thing starts this Sunday or this Saturday. Um, I'm really tired. <laughs> I got home really late last night, um, but. Uh, the uh, the ladies thing starts this Saturday, um, and so it's always encouraging for the ladies to be able to get together, and they're talking about the fruit of the Spirit. Um, and um, I think we'll try. I'll see whether we can work it out, but I, I think, and I'll check with my wife, but I'd really like to be able, I know not all the ladies can make it. Um, it might be nice to be able to... Um, be able to try to record the the speakers so that those that can't make it or be there and that way they feel connected um and we'll do it kind of like we do on sunday mornings what yeah well we have the camera oh you oh that video yeah i totally forgot that that even existed i didn't set it up sorry i was busy <laughs> i forgot um yeah i blew that didn't i Darn it. <laughs> there was a really cool video that we'll have to post on the Facebook page. How's that? <laughs> Sorry. I was a little bit, now I feel terrible. Oh, man. Um, it's an intro to the ladies thing. There's no escape in this one. I should just... Bob, you're preaching. Go ahead. You, do you have your phone? Upload it to YouTube and send the link to, to Doug's email, and he'll run it at the end of the service. All right? So we'll... This is why I have a 10th degree in Google. 
Um, yeah, upload it to YouTube and then Doug will, Doug will stream it. Um, so we'll, we'll do that at the end of the service. We'll get that in. Um, all right. Man, I am totally off balance now. Let's go ahead and reset with the first song. No. Um, all right. All right. Revelation chapter 6. Let's take a look at it. Uh, we have been, uh, if you're visiting with us, there's a Bible in the rack in front of you. You can grab that. Um, we started last week looking at the book of the Revelation, and, and I, I am going to start every one of these messages with, with a little bit of a disclaimer, just so everybody's aware. I am not going to take a whole lot of time um, trying to identify what future thing matches with what part of the vision in the book of the Revelation. Um, there have been countless, countless books generated by the Christian industrial complex trying to explain um, the book of the Revelation. I'm going to go ahead, and, and the title of this series has been The Unavoidably Weird End of the Bible. This book is weird. It is sometimes confusing. It is sometimes frustrating. But we offer just a couple of rules. Um, and one of the main rules that we talked about was the rule of two. Um, when you see twos in the Revelation, and I don't mean there was this and then there was this, but rather things that exist in, in parallel patterns. Um, it's, it's really important that we look at those. That's one of the things we're going to do this morning in Revelation chapter 6. Um, I'm not going to read the whole passage, um, the whole lengthy stretch of this, but I, I would encourage you as you are, as we're going through this series, and I think I mentioned this last week, but as we're looking at the book of the Revelation, I would encourage you to read the book of the Rela Revelation several times over the next few weeks. We plan to be done with this by Thanksgiving. You say, but I don't understand the book of the Revelation. That's okay. We don't have to understand everything we, we, we go over. But what we do want to do is we wanna, you want to be familiar with it so that when I say um, this image or that image or this thing or that thing, you're, you go, okay, yeah, I read that, and I have no clue what that was all about. And then we can kind of make a connection, and hopefully it'll clarify that. Then when you go back and read it again, you say, oh, yeah, okay. Um, so there are a lot of these images that occur, occur in the Revelation, and there are these really, really extensive, expansive visions. Um, so I mentioned the rule of the twos, watch for the twos. The other thing, another rule, which I did not mention last week, but it's worth remembering is the whirlwind rule. Um, the book of the Revelation is a maelstrom. Uh, when you read chapter 1 and chapter 2, you will see that as Jesus is speaking to John, as he is revealing, and then as these angels and visions occur, the, the depiction is that there is this whirlwind of activity going on. And John is literally inside of a whirlwind of visions. And so he's seeing this, and then he's seeing that, and he's seeing this, and then he's seeing that. So we have to be really careful when we read John, um, and this goes for the Gospel of John too, you have to be really careful not to treat it as if it's a linear chronological thing. There's a lot of overlapping that occurs in both John's Gospel and the, the Revelation, where an event will happen, but then another event will be recorded, and that event may, have, may chronologically fit before the event that occurred. You know, th there's, there's a lot of that going on. And so it's and a lot of a lot of the difficulty of this is you have to constantly deal with this. So think of the whirlwind rule. And this is how my dad described it to me when I was a kid. And it made the most sense to me. Think of it as a kid in a circus. And different things are coming into the three rings at different times. 
Well, what ha- I know nobody goes to circuses anymore, but um, what's a circus? Was that like before TV? Uh, but in, in a three-ring circus, there's always something going on in all three rings. And so there's always an entertainment going on. So you're always watching. And now in the middle ring, and you go, and the dancing bears, and, and, and the elephants that, you know, play darts. And they're, they're, I, don't, I don't know all the things that people do in circuses anymore. Um, but, but the trapeze artists and all, and you're constantly switching back and forth. Well, if you remember what it was like to be a kid and go to the circus, and you're like, oh, this, and then this, and then this, that's very much the way that John explains his visions and then i saw this and then i saw this and this was going on and then this was happening and this was going and it's not this and then this and then this it's this and this and this and this and this and this and this all right so he's he's moving very much around like that i just made myself dizzy um and that's what's happening uh the whirlwind and the rules of two the rule of twos really helps understand why some of these visions look very very similar and we're going to look at one of those this morning revelation chapter six um, Revelation chapter 6, if you were here last week, um, the vision last week, the songs of the world, the old and the new, um, the, the message of chapters 4 and 5 was that the creator God, who is enthroned, the ancient of days, and the Lamb of God, who was slain from the foundations of the earth, um, as the crowd gathered in heaven sings worship to them, the line between the two of them begins to blur, and they are, they are seen as one. And this was John's, what's called John's fully realized Christology, that, that he believed Christ was God the Son and Son of God, and that they were one and the same, even though they were separate. That whole uh, Trinity mystery thing that's going on, and John believes this. And so in that previous vision that he saw, the Ancient of Days, the, the God, the creator of the universe, has, is enthroned, and in his hand he holds a seal, which is... Um, the will and testament. It's, it's the, the title deed of all of creation, uh, a scroll. And that scroll has seven seals on it. And nobody can take the scroll until the Lamb shows up, um, who is Jesus, and Jesus shows up and takes the scroll. And chapter, chapter 6, beginning in chapter 6, is the opening of the seals. Um, so as each seal is broken, something um, is revealed. Uh, and a voice calls. And so chapter 6 and verse 1, Now I watched the Lamb... Um, watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures, there are four beasts around the throne, and I and say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I look and behold, looked and behold a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright and red, and its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. And when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in its hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, literally a a green horse, a sickly horse. Um, And its rider's name was Death, and Hell, or Hades, followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God 
and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Now there's a sixth seal and it, it's got a whole bunch of stuff, verse 12, um, earthquakes and things like that. But I want to, with that fresh in your mind, so look at the numerical pattern that's there. There are four seals that are opened and what comes out of those four seals? Conquest and war and uh, famine. That's why the court of wheat for a denarius, it's a famine. And the fourth one, death and hell. Right? And then the fifth seal is opened, and what does he see in the fifth seal? He sees those who have been slain, and they're given a white robe. They're calling out for, uh, when, how long will you wait? Right. Go down to chapter 7. So we got a four-in-one pattern there. So guess what the rule of twos is going to kick in. So what do you think we're going to see in chapter 7? Four-in-one. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on the earth or sea against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And he goes through 12,000 from this one, 12,000 from this one. And then verse 9, And after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, uh, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders of four living creatures. Okay, and then we get the passage that we read about those declarations, and then the elder, one of the elders asks John in verse 13, who are these clothed in white robes? Where have they come? And I said to him, sir, you know. And he said, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Um, and there's, so there's a, a four and one. There's the four horsemen and the four winds. And there's the fifth seal, which is a multitude of martyrs that cry out and are given what? You know what they're given? White robes. And then we have the four winds and we have a multitude calling out, praising God, and they are dressed in white robes. In fact, there are two multitudes. There's 144,000, which are very clearly Jews because they're from the tribes of, of, of uh, Israel. And then we have a great multitude from all nations and tribes and languages and tongues. And the rule of twos kicks in that these are the same thing. Right? There are both Israel and the church, and they are both united. They're both there, present to worship God. So there's, there's a lot that's going on there. I want to unpack this a little bit. I want to have a word of prayer. I know that this stuff can be really confusing and frustrating. I'm going to try to keep it short. Um, try to keep it as, as, as easy to understand as I possibly can and not get into all kinds of craziness. Um, but, uh, but let's go ahead and just have another word of prayer real quick. Lord, give us clarity of thought and mind as we look to your word. And I believe that this is as much inspired as things that tell us how to parent or things that tell us how to worship or what to believe. And yet it is difficult to understand. It is a little weird. It is a little hard to decipher. And, and we all make mistakes on the way. 
Lord, help us to be clear where you are clear and to be open where you leave openings uh, for interpretation and help us to be encouraged through your word. We pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. <coughs> so here's the deal. I know plenty of people who want to identify the four horsemen. You know, I mean, you know, I, I believe it or not, and Dave and I joke around about being raised in fundamentalist homes, but I know somebody who in a sermon identified them with the four Beatles. Amen. Preach it. And nobody could question him because he was the pastor, and he, so he was right. Um, you know, I'm not saying they are the horsemen of the apocalypse, but it's coming, you know, that, that kind of a thing. <clears throat> what do we see when we look at the description in chapter 6 of these four horsemen? What I see um, are a description of the way that the world goes without the preserving sovereign hand of God. Conquest, war, destruction, famine, death, hell. These are the birthright of creation that has fallen. The sinful world tears at itself and destroys itself and breaks itself up. And it hates the righteousness of God. It opposes the, the, the things of God. The Apostle Paul says that the natural man cannot understand the things of God. They, they tear at it and they destroy it. And they, they wreak havoc on it. And when the supernatural presence of the church entered into this, this context, um, there was a certain amount of that pushback from the natural world. And John sees that on a global scale, and I think that he sees it on a, on a cyclical scale that eventually builds, because remember, one of the rules that I said last week about the Revelation is that the, the, they, they recognize that what is happening now has happened before and will happen again until God comes. All right? Until Christ comes. Then, until Messiah comes. Then it will stop. So John is looking at what he's living through. Uh, he's seeing a vision that he can identify with as a pastor of churches that have endured the ripping and tearing of the forces of nature, the unfettered um, debauchery of mankind and creation without a sovereign God. He's endured it in the present, and he can look back in the past and see that it's happened before. And in this vision, he sees that it will continue. It will continue. And remember that ever so important word. Until until the day of the Lord. And so, is this, when people ask, you know, is this a futuristic vision? The answer is yes. Is this an assessment of what was going on in that day? The answer is yes. Is this something that had happened in the past? The answer is yes. Mankind and creation left to itself will destroy itself. It will conquer, it will rule, it will destroy. Even the best of us. We were talking on the car ride um, back. We were talking about this country. I love the United States. I think it's the greatest country in the world. I, I believe it is far from perfect. Um, I believe it is flawed and broken. And I, if I had been at the Constitutional Convention, I would have wept with the representatives from New England who wept over the fact that they had to include compromises to allow slavery into the Constitution. They knew that it was wrong, but they could not stop it. They had to have a consensus. 
Um, I believe that this country was founded on law and government and, and the men who founded it desired to create a moral society. I don't know that they wanted to create a religious or Christian society, but they, they desired a moral society. They were looking to build something beautiful, but you know what they also were looking to build? They were looking to build a new Rome. Go to, go to Washington, D.C., and you will see Rome in miniature. You will see Roman monuments to our presidents. You will see Roman, the Roman adoration of the Egyptian obelisk in the Washington Monument. Um, you will see Lincoln enshrined as Jupiter Maximus in the Lincoln Memorial. When they created the, the seal of the United States, they put on it an eagle looking to the west. And the reason that the eagle looks to the west is they believed it was God's calling upon them that they should conquer this pagan, con- this pagan continent and they should make it into a new Jerusalem. One of the reasons that I am not a big fan of singing patriotic songs um, like um, uh, America the Beautiful in church services is there are lines in America the Beautiful that view the United States as the new Jerusalem. And, and I, I have a real problem with that. Your alabaster towers, alabaster towers gleam. That is the new Jerusalem. They were not perfect. They desired that thing. And so you know what we see? You say, oh, well, that's terrible. No, they were good men doing a, an amazing, extraordinary thing. But the fact of the matter is that mankind wants to conquer, wants to rule, wants to destroy. Mankind given to himself put in our own setting, without the influence of God, we would let others starve so that we could have everything. You say, well, I wouldn't be like that. Thank God. God is what creates generosity in man, because man is not a generous man. You say, well, he does it in non-Christians? He absolutely does. I believe that all good things, the Apostle James said, all good things descend the father of lights so if you had a good father who was not a christian or a good mother who was not a christian or a good friend who is not a christian you know what god is at work in their lives too and he may not give them the credit they may not give him the credit for it but he is doing it i mean if god can use nebuchadnezzar and cyrus the persian to do his will then he can use your co-worker to be an encouragement even though your co-worker may not know it's god's spirit working in it now that's a crazy notion on kind of a rabbit trail But the reality is, what these four horsemen represent is nature left alone with God's intervention. Because sinful nature is destructive and destroying. And if you need any confirmation of that, just look at the beginning of chapter 7, when we have the four winds. And the four winds are the destructive forces that will destroy the earth and the sea. And what is happening with those four winds? There are four angels standing hand to hand around the world this is the vision that he sees so just so you understand what he's seeing when you look at chapter 7 and chapter 7 says i saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth the four angels are standing north north south east west and they have their hands they're standing their hands joined and they are holding back everything that is trying to destroy the earth now at this point somebody goes did they see a flat did john see a flat earth or a round earth and the answer to that question is, he doesn't say, and I don't care. Um, four, corners, four corners means the four directions of the wind. That's all he's saying. And so they're standing to hold the four winds back. All right? Um, and so they're, they're in position to protect the world. Why? 
Another angel comes flying. He says, don't unleash those winds until we have a chance to seal those who are God's. The Scriptures elsewhere says that we are not appointed to wrath. The wrath of God is not, and this is, this is going to mess with your head, but the wrath of God is not that God intentionally does bad things to creation. God simply takes His hand away and creation destroys itself. See, God is not a wrathful, malicious deity looking to break you up and destroy you. Every moment of peace and love and hope in our world is a sovereign act of a Creator God holding the effects of sin at bay in your life and my life and in all of creation. And you say, how does a good God allow bad things to happen? A sinful world is a sinful world is a sinful world. And that does not mean that when people sin, bad things happen to them. It means that all of creation is broken and flawed. And the extraordinary thing is not that bad things happen, but that more of them don't happen. And God is sovereign over all of that. And so when He depicts these four horsemen, when He shows John these four horsemen, And then he shows John these four angels holding back the wind that is coming to destroy the earth and the sea. The point of these two visions is not the first four seals and the four winds. The point of these two visions is the fifth seal and the multitude. The ones dressed in white. That's the point of these visions. Now look at what happens here. First of all, they're under the altar. Now the scriptures describe elsewhere the the smoke rising from the altar is described as the prayers of the saints. So they are under the altar of the temple of God before His throne. Which, by the way, in case you don't know this, and and it's not common knowledge, but I'll let you know a little Hebrew thing. Palace and temple are the same word in Hebrew. So, So when this vision of the throne, when he sees the Ancient of Days in the throne, and then suddenly we start describing the altar. I've had people ask, well, are we in the temple or are we in the, the palace of God? And the answer to that is yes. Because palace and temple are one thing in Hebrew. Halakha. They, um, not halakha. Um, ka, I'm not going to remember. Halakha means clean. Never mind. Um, but the, the, it's one word, and I can look it up. I, it's flighting out of my head um, at the moment. But uh, but. This is this idea. So he's at the throne and the altar is before him and this multitude is singing, right? Um, and so, and when they're calling out to him, they say, oh, oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long will you, before you will judge and avenge our blood? Now look at the next one in the next vision and you see that the angels are holding back the vengeance of God so that all that would be sealed can be sealed. This God that the neo-atheists want to accuse of being terrible and horrible and malicious and misogynist and destructive and, and genocidal, according to John as he sees this vision, God is holding back the tide of the destruction of this sinful world until all who will come 
come. Until all who will be saved are saved. He will not allow a single soul that will come to Him to be lost. And He literally... This should choke you up about your God. He literally moves time and space for you. He is not willing that you should be lost. He, with all the creative power of a sovereign creator God, through all of eternity, has been holding back the judgment that we deserve so that we might be saved. And those who have gone before us and have been broken and destroyed and martyred, they say, how long will you wait, O Lord? How long will you wait? And He says, give them white robes and let them know that they are Mine. But there are more robes in the room. And until every single robe is filled, the judgment does not come. And you say, why are you getting all teary about that? That means there is still hope. The book of the Revelation is not about, ha ha, the end of the world and the wicked get theirs. It is about a God who loves His created man so much that He will not let go. Let me tell you something. That's a God to be excited about. I don't want a God up up in heaven with a baseball bat waiting for people to fail so He can squash them. Send them to hell. Ha ha, sorry. I believe it is a heartbreak to God. I absolutely believe it breaks God's heart that there are those that will not come to know Him. That will not accept the sacrifice of Jesus on the, on the cross for their sins. I believe that it tears at the heart of the Creator of the universe. That His creation chooses their own foolishness rather than to follow Him. So when we read this, you need to recognize that, that that friend or coworker or family member who will not hear, but you believe. You ever had one of those people you just knew God was working on them? Every day, every breath, every moment that they live, God is holding back the destruction of the universe. So you have one more opportunity to love them to share the gospel with them, to, to speak the word of God into their lives, to serve them. And it's a good thing he does that because he did that for you too. He held back the universe until the time came that you were ready. And for some of you, it was when you were a kid and you became a Christian and, and it was great and your whole life you followed with him. For some of us, it was a long, arduous journey. And sometimes we felt like, you ever heard the story, you know, there's a, the footprints in the sand. Everybody's heard this, you know. There's guys walking along the beach with God. And he says, God, I see, I see, you know, two sets of footprints. But then sometimes I see one set of footprints. And Jesus says, oh, that's when I carried you. And then, but you don't read the next stanza, which is, and then there were these parts where there's this long streak. What was that? Oh, that was when I was dragging you. 
Um, but but the, the reality is the reality is that our God revealed to John the Apostle is a God of infinite, boundless, universe moving compassion and mercy and grace. See, when people read the Revelation and all they get out of it is judgment is coming. Why are you so angry with the people that God doesn't want to be angry with? God does not want to bring his wrath down on anyone. It broke his heart when Adam and Eve fell. It broke his heart. People say, why didn't he just judge them right there and start again? Would you be able to do that? If your child failed, would you be able? Ah, let's just start again. That would be a heartless God. The God who created our hearts, and this is something to contemplate, has one. Not a physical heart like we have, but his heart can be broken and grieved He can be resisted. You read the apostles and they talk about resisting the Holy Spirit, grieving the Holy Spirit. It talks about having our conscience seared um, by resisting. It talks about, the scriptures talk about there are times where God, a heartbroken God, finally says, fine. Romans, he says, and they gave them up to the imaginations of their heart. He said, fine. If you won't. But every opportunity is revealed the heavens declare the handiwork the the heavens declare the work of God the handiwork of God everything is there if we are willing to hear all of creation reverberates when they told Jesus's disciples to be silent on Palm Sunday Jesus said if you silence these the rocks themselves would cry out and one of the guys at the speaker this week one of the speakers at the thing this weekend said you know that means that a rock can do my job that's kind of sad I said, no, a rock can't do your job. A rock is just doing a rock's job. The Apostle Paul says that all creation groans awaiting the adoption of sons. The whole universe is waiting for God to bring all of His people together. And it groans because He is holding back the natural flow of the universe This sinful universe's natural flow is destruction and death and falling in on itself. And God has His angels holding that back until all who can come or all who would come or all, it doesn't matter how your theology explains it, until God draws all who will come, until all who commit do come. And it doesn't matter how you describe it because one is, they were just looking at the same thing. We all know that God does it. I don't do it. But until all have been gathered and all have been given their white robes, he does not let the floodgates of judgment go. Now you can take that one of two ways. You can either live your life in fear of the floodgates. You can live your life in the fear of the wrath of God dropping on you. Or you can live your life in celebration of a God who built the dam in the first place. Who stopped up the flow of sin so that we might be saved. 
you know what? When that dynamic enters into your theology, suddenly all of the little petty theological arguments don't mean diddly squat. You know, are we dispensationalists or covenant theologians or blah, 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 blah. Now that's an interesting discussion and I've had those conversations with people. But you know what? Ultimately, you know what's really, really cool? However God has been doing it, He's been holding back judgment so that He could gather a people to Himself. That's cool. That's a God that's cool. That's a God who... who are you getting what I'm saying? That's the point of the book of Revelation. The book of the Revelation is all about God gathering His people. And He's not going to stop until He gets all of them. And because He's God, nobody can stop Him. Satan tries. Repeatedly. And we'll, we'll hit that again when we hit the two women and the dragon and the beasts and all these things. Satan has done everything in his power to try to stop the agenda of God. And until the last one comes... God allows Satan to live in his delusion. And when the opportunity comes at the end of the book of Revelation, when it's finally time, when it is finally time, he just picks up Satan, death, and hell, throws him in the lake of fire because really they were never a threat. They thought that they were winning the war and the reality was the only reason that they could ever even try is because God was holding back the judgment. When I was a kid, I used to wrestle with my dad. I'll close with this story. Um, and my dad, uh, he has hands like mallets. There are no fingers. There's just little stubs that stick out of these massive maws. All right? And as he's gotten older and arthritis has, has gotten into it, they've gotten even bigger and scarier looking. Um, and we used, I used to think I was pretty good at wrestling with him. And then one day, I made the mistake, um, as a kid, I had a dream, and I went into my mom's, mom and dad's bedroom and tried to wake up my mom. And I grabbed her, I said, Mom, Mom, Mom. And she woke up and she said, Kirk, there's a man in the room. My dad came across the bed with that, his right hand cocked. Out of the bed. I mean, this is all upper body, this punch was thrown. Now, I was about eight years old. He came around, and at the very last moment, he realized it was me and pulled the punch and still drove me into the wall. And I realized, until the old man got sick, there was no way that I was going to be able to beat him. I, I'm not kidding, and I'm not in terrible shape, and I'm a relatively strong guy. I have seen my father do things, even in his sixth state, that I sit there and go, where is that muscle mass coming from? The reality is, his entire time that he was wrestling with me and fighting with me, he was holding back. Because if he had unleashed all that he was, he would have completely destroyed me. I would not have stood a chance. Because he was a merciful and compassionate father. And our merciful and compassionate father, capital F, is holding back the, the full fury of the wrath of this creation until the last one of us comes to know Him. And if you're not a believer this morning, if you are not a Christian, 
because you are concerned about whether God is, can forgive you or whether God is willing to save you or whether um, you've, you have been a terrible person you just don't think he's got the power to do it or you have been told by the, the, uh, the academic complex that God is merciless and angry and malicious and, and a deceiver and all of those things, I'm going to tell you right now, the God of the Bible is the absolute definition of mercy, love, and compassion. And He calls us as Christians to be that. And anything that isn't, isn't true Christianity. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, as we have come together, Lord, we pray that you would be glorified in our lives and our journeys and our paths. Lord, help us to know the God that we serve, to serve Him with all that we are. There are those in this room who now are on the journey and saying, this is a God I want to know more about. Lord, I pray that your Spirit would open the path that they would hear your voice and be joined with your people and singing the song of creation and walking together. 